Hello, dear listener. Uh, welcome to the Neighbors Church Podcast. My name's Dan, and um, we are currently in a series, a 12-week meditation in Jesus' prayer that he gave to his disciples, traditionally called the Our Father, uh, also known as the Lord's Prayer. And this past week, uh, this past Sunday, we introduced the prayer, the first line of the prayer, and the audio file was corrupted. And so uh, the team really thought that this was such a foundational teaching and bedrock for praying this particular prayer and this practice through the fall for our church that we felt it important to re-record it. So here I am, friend, right in your ears with Sunday's teaching redone and recorded just for you. (laughs) We love you. So let me pray, and we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you for the community that calls neighbors home Thank you for the, the community outside of neighbors that listens in and learns alongside us as we worship you and as we trust you. Bless now this teaching and may it shape this listener's heart fully and completely with great joy as a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1951, John Balby, he was a British psychoanalyst, and he, his emphasis was primarily in child development. He published a seminal work entitled Maternal Care and Mental Health. Now, by the end of the decade, the end of the 50s, Balby and his colleagues, they were developing a highly sophisticated psychological model. And this model explored how our identity structures, our emotional formation, how even our neurobiological development is radically shaped by the type of connection we have to our most intimate caregivers. And it's shaped from the womb to the tomb, from infancy to adulthood. Now today, that model has been entitled attachment theory, and it is well-tested and almost universally accepted and applied as a therapeutic protocol or process in the counseling world. If you've spent any time on a therapist's couch, you've almost surely taken a trip down memory lane as they've asked you something along these lines. Tell me about your childhood. How would you describe it? Talk to me about your mom. What was your relationship with her like? How might you describe your earliest memories of your father? And so, as is always the case, modern science is just now barely starting to catch up with what the spiritual sages of Christianity have known for millennia. Namely, we are who we are because of who we came from and how we relate to them. But this isn't an armchair lesson in psychology. This is actually a teaching on how we relate to God and how we connect to him and how we attach to him. And this teaching is certainly not from research studies and human theory. It is from the mind of God himself, enfleshed in Jesus Christ among us 2,000 years ago, as he was instructing his apprentices on the means and ways of prayer. Now, All first century Jews were taught memorized forms of prayer. Various rabbinic schools had long established traditions and liturgies and forms of prayer that the students, the apprentices, adopted as their own. Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern rabbi, and his students wanted to make his models their own. But I think behind their request, Lord, teach us to pray, I think there was more going on behind the scenes in their asking for the Lord to teach them to pray. Jesus was like no other rabbi. He was like no other leader or other teacher that these people had ever listened to or seen. 
And so I think when the first century disciples watched Jesus pray, they were being drawn to more than religious form or eloquence or education or even wisdom. I think as they watched Jesus pray, their hearts burned with a fire that they just couldn't put out. When they watched Jesus lift his hands and his eyes to the Father, they were watching a human. They saw a human immersed in love, a human resolute in trust, a human empowered in obedience. And I think as they observed Jesus bowing his body in prayer, they caught a glorious glimpse of what humanity was always intended to be because they were seeing a child, the Son, trusting his Father for provision and protection and guidance. They saw a child, the Son, perfectly yielded and obedient to the goodwill of his Father. And they saw a child, the eternal Son, at one with his Father in this temporal world. In the vocabulary of attachment theory, what the first century disciples saw when Jesus prayed was perfect, secure attachment. In the language of Christian theology, they saw union and they longed for it. And so their request, echoed by us two millennia later, Lord, teach us to pray. It has these eternal and mystical subterranean currents really flowing under the shallow crust of our perceived desires. Underneath all human longing and behavior is the ache for attachment, for union. Union with God is every human being's greatest need and deepest longing. Jesus' instructions on the nature and character of who we address our prayer to is a first step towards true attachment, towards reunion and union with God. Jesus' opening lesson on prayer was absolutely revolutionary in his day, and it is just as revolutionary today because Jesus took the power that created a trillion sons, this timeless, unknowable being, and he said to address him with a, an earthy, sort of blue-collar dirt under the fingernails, common to every living human being, touchable, tangible, approachable title. This then is how you should pray, Father, our Father. Now, Jesus employed an Aramaic term in his opening address to God, Abba. Abba was a term of endearment, and for most of his society, it was the language of little children. It was a simple two-syllable title that toddlers could use as one of their first points of verbal communication with their parents. For us, in English, it's mama or dada. In Jesus' culture, it was Abba. Scholarship once wrote at great length on this idea, made much of the infantile nature of Jesus' title for God in this opening address. We now know that while Jesus certainly intended to create a child likeness by employing the term Abba for God, it was much more widely used in his adult society. And Jesus certainly in no way intended to reduce a disciple's prayer life to that of an immature, temper tantrum throwing, two foot tall human being. <laughs> but as we're going to see in the coming weeks in our meditation in this amazing prayer, our prayers may begin as temper tantrums and sort of incoherent babbling in our frustration. But the Our Father is a maturing prayer. It takes us from infancy to maturity in the Lord as we practice it over and over. Suffice it to say, to call God Abba was so elementary that it was almost offensive in the ears of the disciples. As much as it was uncomfortable for them, we moderns may find it equally uncomfortable. 
we might find such language to be kind of a little bit silly. For some, it might even be sacrilegious. Now, this is a good stopping point for you, dear listener, to slow down and consider a few questions. What is your personal embodied reaction to referring to God with a term of endearment, with a term of childlikeness and innocence, a term of of radical simplicity? Do you resonate with that idea in your heart and mind and body? Or do you resist that idea? Does it make you uncomfortable? And ask yourself, why do I resist this? Why do I resonate with this idea of God as Abba? Jesus actually intended that these types of questions would be raised when he introduced his opening address to God as Abba, as Father. He wanted us to deeply consider the way that we perceive God. Now, the great A.W. Tozer, pastor in Chicago in a generation gone by, in his work, Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Remember from last week, for some, prayer is a source of frustration. For some, it's a source of shame and humiliation. And for some, it's really a sore spot. Prayer is a source of pain due to denials and unmet expectations. And this frustration and shame and pain has shaped the way that we perceive God. The way we think of God dictates why we pray. The way we think of God dictates how we pray. The way we think of God dictates if we pray at all. If we are to learn to pray in the way of Jesus, if we're to reopen our hearts to new possibilities of faith and hope, we must ask ourselves, what comes into my mind when I think about God? The fundamental lesson Jesus started with on prayer was not how to position our bodies, not how much time to spend in prayer, not how much effort to exert. He taught the most important thing about prayer is that the person praying understands the nature and the character of the one to whom they are praying. Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, observes, after more than 25 years in pastoral ministry, 20 of them teaching on prayer, I have come to the conclusion that most people's biggest problem with prayer is with God. They envisage him scowling, perpetually disapproving, invariably disappointed, and needing to be placated or persuaded in prayer. If that's how you picture God, I really don't blame you for trying to avoid his gaze. Now, this circles us back to attachment theory. Attachment theory has various categories, secure attachment, avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, disorganized attachment, all of these patterns. And these malformed and deformed patterns of attachment that have been identified by psychoanalytical research, well, they propose that they affect every relationship we have throughout the entirety of our life, these attachment patterns. And many believe in the Christian world that these attachment patterns actually influence the way that we relate to God. Because we are formed in a broken world by broken people, we by default have a broken and deformed vision of God. It's not all our parents' fault though. Our perceptions of God are of course formed by our parents, but they are just as much formed by our circumstances, our internal personality structures, They're formed by sin around us, sin done to us, sin done by us. Our vision of God is a very complex tapestry of good and bad, beautiful, ugly, true, and false influences. No one factor for how we view God can take the blame. And I'm actually saying this as a means of subtle course and maybe firm course 
correcting. There's a trajectory I've seen set, maybe unintentionally, in my own life and in the life of others. Therapy culture, the culture we exist in now, in some cases has inadvertently and unintentionally justified a wholesale finger-pointing and blame-shifting of our issues solely onto our parents. Now, yes, our parents influenced us for good and bad, some for better and some for worse, but they're not the sole source of our woes and issues. We friends as image bearers are responsible agents in both discerning where unhealthy attachments and patterns have a grip on us, where they are influencing us, but we are also responsible agents in our partnership with God, in our healing, in forgiveness, in our growth through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that said, it goes without saying, we approach God with distorted perceptions of who he is. Let me give you some examples. For some of us, God is what I just called the angry, disappointed deity. Now, when we pray to this God, it may go something like this. I beg you not to hate me. I know I'm ugly. I'm worthless. You are mighty and perfect. I deserve nothing from you. I am unlovable and your anger and disappointment in me are justified. Now, some of us approach God as the capricious judge. He's an unpredictable authoritarian who drops the hammer on us at any time. When we pray to this God in this way, we might say, oh, judge, did I do enough today to appease you? Oh, unpredictable judge, I don't know what I did, but I know my life circumstances right now are because you're punishing me. Oh, dangerous judge, show me what to do so I might be right and win your favor and be delivered from this punishment. Some of us, I've noted in my own life in particular, especially for affluent and comfortable Christians of of Western culture, we can approach God as a powerful and rich authority that we're to negotiate with. And so our prayers go along these lines. Now, of course, we don't pray this literally. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and stereotyping and caricaturing here, but we might pray this way. Oh, rich and powerful being, you've got everything in your possession that I think I need. Money, power, ability to move people and circumstances. So here's my terms of negotiation. I'll do this and this and this in exchange for this and this and that from you. And in essence, we begin to approach God like he's a vending machine. And that vending machine is full of every dream fulfilled treasure. And so prayer becomes more like trying to put the money in and then punch the right buttons to get the goods out of it to the point where sometimes many of us have felt like we need to shake the vending machine as hard as we can because, you know, our candy bar or our bag of chips, that dream fulfillment somehow got stuck in the rack, even though we've already paid the money and punched the buttons and all the right prayers and all the right behaviors have been said. I think most tragically, and and many feel this way, they just think of God as an absentee non-presence and never approach him in any way whatsoever because he's not there. And if he's not there, he doesn't care. Our father knows that we do this, friends. Our father is not surprised or upset by our messed up versions of himself. In fact, our father works through our most deformed versions of himself and he intends to heal them. Remember how Jesus opened this prayer from last week. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows where we're broken. He knows what broke us. He knows how severe the fractures are. He knows we're plagued with our past, our present emotional patterns, the anxieties of a future we can't control. He knows how dangerous hope feels to some of us because he's been with us in every single one of our disappointments, in those unmet expectations, in those lost dreams. 
He knows how hard we've been working to figure out the buttons on the vending machine to get what we want and that it's not been dropping into our hands. He has been watching and with us through all of our striving to garner and produce a sense of security, to be seen in the world, to feel noticed, to feel safe, to feel loved. And even in what has felt like some of our most abandoned moments, God our Father has been there, waiting, quiet, ready to meet us, no matter how we address Him. Because as a good Father, He would rather us pray as we can than not pray at all. And through all of it, He patiently proves Himself to be worthy of our trust and surrender. He proves Himself worthy of the title, Abba, Father. Praying to God as unconditionally loving Father, this reduces us, friends, to our most vulnerable, powerless, needy selves. To pray to God as Father is to turn from our past. It is to turn from our brokenness. To pray to God as Father is to turn from our fears. It is to turn from our circumstances. It is to turn from our dreams fulfilled and our dreams lost. It is turning to our Father and saying, I trust you because... Praying to God as Father is a work of faith. Faith is more than an intellectual assent to an idea. We can acknowledge and believe in our brains that the bridge is going to hold us up. But until we step out onto the bridge, we're just believing. We don't really have faith in the bridge. When we step out onto the bridge, though, when we place the whole weight of our life onto it, trusting it to hold us up, now that's faith. Faith is an act of risk. Faith is an act of surrender. Faith steps out, trusting that God can and will sort out our misconstrued versions of himself. Faith risks that who we thought God was may be very different from the version that we have kept in our mind to this point. Yes, family, it is scary and risky to pray to our Father because it calls our souls to childlikeness, and to true faith that steps out. It calls us to trust him and not ourselves, to trust him and not the outcomes, to trust him as father and not the circumstances, and to trust him as he's revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. Now listen, even the desire to risk and surrender, that is a gift from an unbelievably loving father. Even now in the listening of this teaching, if you feel your heart strangely warmed and compelled and moved just ever so subtly, that is your father wooing you. Because as much as praying to him as father is a work of faith, praying to God as our father is a work of the Holy Spirit. The radical miracle of Christianity teaches that when a soul with the tiniest mustard seed of faith, steps out in surrender and places the weight of their life into the hands of God, we are born again in the language of Jesus. We are remade, new creations in the language of St. Paul. We are reformed into a new creation. And our deepest, those subterranean desires align with God's will and God's desires. Now, Paul in the book of Romans said of this miracle, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. God himself, the Holy Spirit, indwells your surrendered soul and a subterranean transformation has occurred. You are no longer a slave to the world, to sin and to the devil. You are no longer guilt bound by guilt or shame or fear. You are a child of God 
and you cry out by that spiritual miracle of adoption, Abba, Father. Now you may be sitting there listening, saying, Dan, I do not feel like a new creation. I still see God in all the ways that you mentioned before, angry deity, capricious judge, vending machine, all-powerful authority with whom I must negotiate. And I want you to hear, that's okay. Your father knows what you need before you even ask, and he is going to work with you your whole life to peel away the patterns of sin, the inertia of malformed attachments and warped attachments. He's going to work with you your whole life to reframe and make right the wrong perceptions of himself by his Holy Spirit. It is a lifelong process of conviction of sin, acts of repentance, healing attachments through healthy community, finding refreshment and new power through God's grace, slowly, incrementally, inch by inch, sometimes drastically, most of the time slowly, we begin to live out of our deepest, truest desires. And those are the desires of the Holy Spirit within us. And that spirit through us is crying out, Abba, Father, by faith, as a gift, we respond. It takes a lot of time, our whole life, to slow down the inertia of a life spent trying to protect ourselves, trying to provide for ourselves, trying to make ourselves lovable. And so we have our rabbi, our master, our teacher, and he trains us to pray as children, as the children that we are in the spirit. So praying to the Father is a work of faith. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then it is a work of apprenticeship and practice. Praying to God as Father is a work of apprenticeship and practice. We have to practice, 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 practice praying to God as our Abba, Father. And you may be saying, Dan, I'm the person who thinks God is an absentee father. My, my family was so messed up. How can I even know what a loving father feels like or, or looks like? You need to listen carefully. We see our Father in Jesus. We see who the Father is in the life of Jesus And then we also simultaneously learn to pray to the father as Jesus's brother, as his family. You know, some of the people that I respect the most have had such horrendous families and terrible fathers. We have a woman in our church who was orphaned in Uganda, abandoned by her family upon her conversion to Christianity, um, lived in this terrible, terrible state of life, abused by family, by father, by society. And yet when you talk with Lily, her story and love for her father in heaven emanates. She beams pure joy because Lily learned to see her true father in Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. For those of us that have had rougher situations with caregivers and upbringings. Look to Jesus Christ. Read the gospels and consider. Watch how he handled injustice. Watch how he loved. Watch his patience, his gentleness, his faithfulness. Look at his heart. Listen to his words because in those words, in those behaviors of Jesus, we see our father. And as we learn to trust our father, watching Jesus, the character and nature of our father revealed by Jesus, we're also simultaneously learning to pray to the father, just like Jesus did. The same access, the same intimate union that Jesus had as the son, we have as sons and daughters adopted and made children by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, our father, 
he himself was included in the pronoun our. The author of Hebrews said, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And so we practice praying to the Father as we see him in Jesus. And we pray to Jesus' Father as Jesus' brothers and sisters. And the same love and hearing the Father gave to Jesus, he gives to you and I, which ultimately leads to the restoration of all things. Praying to God as Father is a work of faith. Praying to God as Father is a supernatural, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Praying to God as Father is a long, lifelong, lifelong endeavor of apprenticeship and practice, practice, practice. Praying to God as Father is a work of restoration. As we practice praying to God as Father by faith, through the power of the Spirit, God restores everything that has been broken, starting with our souls. He restores us in that prayer to what we actually are, children created and deeply, deeply loved beyond our wildest imaginations. And when we pray to our Father, it is plural. We pray for and we are praying the restoration of relationships. I want to address something here for just a moment in this particular teaching for parents and the relational patterns of parents and parents-to-be that are listening to this teaching. You know, in a, in a church like Neighbors, we interact with modern schools of sociology and psychology. And I think that when we talk about attachment patterns and, and how messed up things are, you know, because of our own upbringings, I think some of us as parents could have a little bit of anxiety and worry right now about how maybe we're messing up our own kids or how, or what we're going to do wrong to mess them up. What, where are we creating insecure attachments in them? All, all of those worries. I, and I think I just want to take a moment here and assure you of two things. One, I say this with gentleness and love. You are messing up your kids. <laughs> you are and you will. Dearest friend, no matter how many parenting books you read, how gentle your parenting is, no matter what tactics you're using right now in your parenting strategy, because of sin done by you and because of sin around you and because of sin done to you and because of sin in your child, our kids are going to have issues. Some of them worse, some of them better than others. The second thing that I want to really make clear in a teaching like this is parenting is not a psychotherapeutic process. Parenting is a theological spiritual process in the context of redemption and grace. God chose you as these little humans caregiver, and he already knew the broken patterns that you brought to the table of your parenting and upbringing, and he intends to heal and restore whatever brokenness comes about through our own parenting processes. This means that you and I, we parent in a context of mercy and redemption. We are not parenting using child development hacks. And we're not trying to emotionally engineer our kids based on research that changes every five to 10 years. Now, I am not saying that you should stop reading all the books. I might suggest getting off of some of the Instagram mom influencers pages. Um, I, I really think those gals are just as scared as you are. They just covered it up with overconfidence and a lot of followers, truly. <laughs> but what, I, what I'm trying to address is that to raise kids with quote unquote strong or secure attachments, parents need a secure attachment to God their father. The whole burden of responsibility for our children, for their souls, is their creator, the maker of their souls. And so the primary way 
that God restores brokenness that comes about in families is when the primary caregivers pray to him as their father, because that creates a secure, non-anxious presence in the parents that then transfers to the kids. Will we still mess them up even as we pray the father every day, maybe even three times a day? Will we still mess them up? Yes, 100%. No doubt about it. And our father will restore in his mercy and grace what we couldn't get right. You know, Alexis and I, we are at the stage of life where we are getting to see the fruit and the faults of the patterns that we set into place in our babies who are now grown up. We almost have all officially adult children at this stage of life. And so it is a, um, oh, how do I, how do I say it? It is an exhilarating, humiliating, overwhelming, joy-giving disappointing process to listen to your adult children process and talk about their interpretations of how they were raised. And what both Alexis and I have come to grips with and really rested in is that at the end of, and my, my kids are actually fairly well off by the grace of Jesus Christ, who has redemptively worked through um, us. My kids are well-rounded and thoughtful and wise. They, they, and um, they've had their stuff that they've had to work through because of us too. But at the end of it all, Alexis and I realized all we could ever give them and all we'll ever be able to give them is a couple of broken people praying to their unconditionally loving father on their broken behalf that his goodwill would be done in their broken lives through both our mistakes and our blessings. You see, when we pray the Our Father, we are praying restoratively. We're praying for our own souls, for our families. For those of you that are in churches, you're praying for your community, the restoration of your community, Our Father, together. We pray our father for the restoration of our city, that we would once again be all brothers and sisters together, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the restoration of the cosmos, our father, come and rule and reign in this context of mercy and grace, that he intends to heal everything that is wrong with the world by making us in right relationship with him. So as I wrap this teaching up, you go about your day, reflect on this. What comes to your mind this morning or this afternoon, wherever you find yourself doing dishes out on a run, stuck in traffic, wherever, what comes to your mind right now when you think about God? Today, right now, he's inviting you to risk and to trust and to believe that he might be more loving, more kind, more good, more restorative, more powerful than you could have ever imagined. And the way that we truly know this is by looking at Jesus. And through Jesus, we see the lengths that the father went to to love us and to have us and that he sent his son to the cross. You know, last year, Sophia, my oldest was in the Philippines for five months. Uh, at the time of this recording, just last week, we sent my middle daughter, Nyla Grace to Norway and she's going to be gone for five or six months. And I can tell you as a father, there is no ache like distance between a father and his daughters. There is no ache like it. You know, just the other day with my son, Joby, uh, I was walking through the room and my wife was all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, Joby, come stand back to back with your dad. And she took a picture of it. My son is, <laughs> well, may I just be honest and humble about it. My son is probably two or three inches taller than I am. Um, he's just a big dude. He's just gotten big and he's bigger than I am. And I can tell you that there was an ache at that loss of... Uh, my baby boy, my little boy, um, my little blue-eyed tank, like he's a man now. And I'll never get that back, the ache of that separation. 
And I've, re- I've realized in these aches, these, these missing my girls and my boy and watching them grow up and become adults and leave, that ache is nothing in comparison to the, to the ache that the father felt in sending the eternal son of God, in separating himself from his son to have us as sons and daughters. This is the pinnacle of love expressed to you that the father would send his son to die for you and resurrect on your behalf. We can't even grasp the pain of the father in separating from his son. And so ask the Holy Spirit by faith to open your heart, to cry even more intensely, whether like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum or like a wise, mature, self-controlled saint, Abba, Father. And then dear friend, watch him through that prayer, our Father. Restore every single broken thing in your soul and in your relationships and in your city and in the cosmos that has ever been broken. He will do this for his glory and for our highest good and joy and the well-being of this world, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven.